Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. I want to talk today about what is probably, not even probably, definitely the most important character trait in experiencing healthy relationships. So this value, church is a covenant family, we ask this question, am I growing in a sense of belonging? And we often, you know, will we'll show up at a church or be a part of a church experience. And it's very easy to have this mentality where we project responsibility upon other people uh, as those who are responsible for helping us to experience family and belonging. But really, I think um, it's very helpful for us if we can really look in the mirror and search our own hearts and ask the Holy Spirit, what would it look like for me to grow in Christ-like character that I might experience a deeper sense of belonging and relationship with other people? So we're going to look at a famous passage of Scripture from Paul. This is in Philippians chapter 2. Feel free to get your Bible out if you want to follow along, or uh, if you want to follow along on the screen, you can do that, um, whichever one. Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin in, in verse 1, and uh, we're going to read about 15 verses here. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is all covenant family language. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, or we might say way of thinking among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, in, and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation 
among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here we have in this passage of scripture, one of the most clear descriptions of the most important character trait of Christ. And we find it sandwiched right between uh, two significant statements about living as the people of God in family, in relationship with one another. He starts out with language like uh, agree with each other, love one another, uh, align with one another, work together in unity, be one. This is all covenant family language. And then he ends that passage, again, focusing on what it practically looks like to fear the Lord, which is all around getting along, not grumbling, not complaining. And sandwiched right in the middle, this character trait of Christ that makes this life possible. So what is this character trait or virtue that Jesus lived by? Well, I wanna to talk to you today about humility in covenant family. Humility in covenant family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for your presence. Lord, even as we've been worshiping you, your presence was here, your anointing was very tangible, very, very powerful. God, I thank you that uh, through the preaching of your word, Lord, you bring revelation. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to convict our hearts today. Lord, where is there pride in our hearts? It would be arrogant to say, Lord, if there's pride. We just say, Lord, wherever there is pride, self-sufficiency, independence, preferring ourselves over others. Lord, wherever that's in there, Lord, would you just show us that we might turn from it. Father, we truly desire to be your dwelling place. We truly desire to be a people that live this depth of love and unity and relationship with one another, but we can't do it on our own. Holy Spirit, we need you to sanctify us and Make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember as a new Christian, hearing people talk about the importance of humility in the life of a believer. And I, I knew it was important because I would see it in passages like this. But I always struggled a bit with the idea of humility, maybe because I was a little bit off on understanding what it actually is. Um, you know, I, I don't know if maybe I thought it was just being weak or letting people run over you or, or, you know, being a quiet, shy person. But even as I started to understand what humility was, I was struggled because um, I, I was thinking, if this is actually important and a, and a helpful virtue to have, why don't we see it more talked about in the world around us. Surely, if it's a virtue that is uh, beneficial, if it's Christ-like, then what does it look like in the real world? How do we live out humility? And why don't we really, you know, why don't we hear people talking about it? I hear about it in church, but why don't we hear people talking about it in business or in government or in sports or in leadership in general? And so if it's actually a good, good thing, surely it works in the real world. And, and then in the early 2000s, I came across this book where it was the first time I'd ever seen humility 
talked about outside of the church as something that was valuable. It was a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Anybody ever heard of that book, Good to Great? So this guy, Jim Collins, he and his team of PhD candidates, they, uh, they had this project to figure out what, what is it that causes a mediocre, good company to become a great company? And so it was this whole, you know, this, it, it, it was this management business um, pursuit of understanding what, what, uh, what, what makes a great company, not just great for a short amount of time, but over a sustained long period of time, what makes a company great. And as I read this book, I was fascinated to learn that one of the character traits of the leaders that he said that sets the, the great companies apart from those that were good were, was this trait of humility. And he called the, the humble leader, he called them a, a level five leader. And so he talked about levels, you know, one, two, three, four, five leader. And, and he spoke of the level four leader as being this larger than life personality. We all, all know this type of leader, right? Big personality, magnetic, very charismatic, uh, highly persuasive person. Whereas the, the level five leader was a little bit different. They came across a bit more unassuming. They, they, they had this, what he called a unique blend of extreme humility and um, strong professional will, which was really this passionate pursuit of a vision that was bigger than themselves. And so where the level four leader had this big ego that actually loved the fact that the company failed after they left, you know, because what greater testament to their leadership greatness that the, than the company falling apart after they're gone. But that was the level four leader mindset. But the level five leader was uh, a type of leader that would sacrifice their ego in the interests of the vision of the company or the business. The level four leader felt threatened by having strong team members around them. Uh, and so what they tended to do was surround themselves with sycophants. You know what that is? It's a yes man. It's someone who will just tell you what, they, what you want to hear, or maybe less competent people uh, because it kind of gave them this elevated sense of, uh, of being better, right? But the level five leader, they could attract and retain extremely competent people, even other leaders who were both radically committed to the vision of the business, but also like passionately committed to following the leader, like they loved the leader. There was something that was magnetic about the leader that made them want to follow them. And so they would create these, the level five leader would create these environments of trust where other people were free to disagree because the leader didn't allow their ego to dominate the conversation and the discussion. And so this had this effect of creating these strong team dynamics. And then when that leader would leave the company, remember he was looking at what is the what, what makes a, a company enduringly great, when that leader would leave, well then there was all these other leaders that would step up and, uh, and the company would go to an even greater level. And so this book fascinated me because for the first time ever, I could begin to see the value of humility and how it actually creates something 
very healthy. Whereas the, the egocentric leader was, would create a toxic culture, the humble leader would create a very healthy and relational culture. Now, little did I know, there, actually, there was actually, I came to found, find out later, there was another book that was written about the same time uh, by this guy named David Gergen. So he, he, this book he wrote was called Eyewitness to Power. And he had written this book uh, in his role as an advisor to four different U.S. presidents. Imagine having this perspective of working with four U.S. presidents and then afterwards, he writes this book kind of comparing and contrasting their leadership styles and the dynamics of, of their leadership. So that was uh, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. He was the advisor to. And so he, in this book, compares and contrasts their leadership styles. But one of the things that he brings out was how he, he highlights the humility of Ronald Reagan. Reagan from his perspective, was this very humble leader who seemed to always uh, deflect attention away from him. He never would let in a conversation the, the, the attention or focus to be on him. He would deflect that and, and, and take the attention of the discussion onto issues or, uh, or onto other people. Um, he never sought to make himself the center of attention. But on the other hand, he said, Clinton, Sorry, we're going to dog a little bit on Clinton today. God bless him. But this is from his book. Uh, Clinton uh, was completely the opposite. He had this tendency to direct conversations and focus upon himself. The conversation would always end, its, end up coming back to, how does this affect me? How does this impact me? What about me in this situation? And so he, he said that as a result of that, Reagan's leadership style really engendered this loyalty and this sense of unity amongst the team. Whereas Clinton, who was very charismatic, was often very self-centered and it would tend to alienate other people and, create a, and it created a bit more of an unhealthy culture. And so here we have some great pictures in business and in government of the importance of humility. And of course, we can see in the life of Jesus that it was his humility and his selflessness that completely radically changed the direction of humanity. His greatest act of humility, Paul tells us, was him becoming obedient to the point of death. He was God, and yet he was, he was willing to let go of his rights and privileges as God, all of his advantages, and it says he emptied himself. I love that. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing, another translation says. He, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the form of a servant, and he died on the cross for the sins of humanity. And remember, this description of Jesus and what he's like is sandwiched between Paul's two statements about and, and exhortations to uh, God's people uh, in Philippi here, living out covenant family. Andrew Murray wrote a great book. The title of it is Humility. <laughs> and uh, he speaks of humility in this book as the one great virtue from which all other virtues come. He, he speaks of humility as being the, the one thing about Jesus that was at the root of of making him 
who he was, his most important virtue and character trait. I love this quote from Andrew Murray. Just listen, I didn't put it on the screen, but just listen. Just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment that God finds you abased and empty, his glory and power flow in. So good, isn't it? Jesus modeling that for us, taking the lowest place, you can't go any lower than bearing all of the sins of humanity and dying on a cross. But from that lowest place, all of the glory and the power of God flows in so that God could then elevate him to the place far above all other rule and authority. But what does humility have to do with covenant family? So glad you asked that question. The reason why humility is such a powerful force is because we'll look at a couple things here. But the first one is this, humility attracts God, but pride repels him. We can see this, this truth hinted at in this great passage in 2 Chronicles 7, after Solomon dedicates the temple and God tells him, he says, if there's ever a time when the judgment of God comes upon the land because the people have turned away, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. The entry point that bring the, the invitation that which attracts God back into the earth and back into the culture to such a degree that even the kingdom of God comes and culture is healed, the land is healed. What is it that attracts God to that great degree? It's humility. It's the humility of God's people. It's a humility that's evidenced by prayer, crying out to him, lifting our voice. The, the, the evidence of our recognition that we need him is seen in our prayer. If we're crying out to him, if we're speaking to him, if we're looking to him as our source, that's the posture. That's the heart of humility. And so we see many passages of scripture that remind us of this, James chapter four. Uh, actually, the first one is in Roman in Proverbs chapter three, which all the other ones quote. Uh, Proverbs three says, he mocks, this is God, he mocks proud mockers. We have this saying in our house, if you make fun of someone in your house, you're being a mocker. And we're like, don't be the mocker from Proverbs, all right? Don't be that guy. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. So James picks this quote, this proverb up, and he quotes it. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I don't know about you, but I do not want to be opposed by God. Right? I don't want God in opposition to me. Well, okay, well, I just need to make sure that I'm not relating to God from a place of pride and arrogance. But it's the favor of God that flows towards who? The humble. Then we see this again in 1 Peter. And interestingly, Peter connects humility towards God with our relationship with one another and humbling ourselves even before one another. Likewise, you, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards God. No, no, he says towards one another. And there he's, he's quoting Proverbs again. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace. And then he says, humble yourselves, therefore. He doesn't say, ask God to humble you, does he? I don't know about you, but I would much rather have the posture of humbling myself than putting myself in a place where God needs to humble me. We saw God humbling King Nebuchadnezzar, right? How did he do that? Well, he removed his sanity for seven years. And at the end of those seven years, he said, now I know. You see, he had looked out on his kingdom. Look what my greatness has produced. Instantly, sanity removed. God said, all right. Because I love you, King Neb, I'm going to teach you a painful lesson. Because you're unwilling to humble yourself, I will happily, out of my love and mercy towards you, step in and humble you. But we're invited here to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So again, Peter's making the connection between our humility towards God and our humility towards one another, cultivating a depth of relationship with one another. Second thing we need to see here is that just like humility is attractive to God, humility is attractive to people, but pride repels. Just as the level five leader and just as Reagan attracted people to them through their humility, just it made their lives attractive. There was something that drew people to them. I feel safe following this person because I'm, 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 there's something I'm feeling. Even if we can't put our finger on what it is, I'm attracted to them. And so Peter, in this last passage we looked at, echoing Paul's truth that humility is the pathway to covenant family. It's through humility that we experience a depth of relationship with one another. All of, this, all of us have um, most likely experienced this in some way in our lives, whether it's a boss or a group of friends that you've had. It's much more pleasant to be around people who are humble and selfless, isn't it? There's something about humble people that create and selfless people that create a healthy culture, but then it's, it's prideful, arrogant people that tend to create a more toxic culture. It's not very fun being around selfish people. I mean, we can look all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and we can see the pain that pride brought. It only took one generation for there to be... Uh, an anger that rose up in Adam's son to the degree that he murdered his brother. All right, so it was pride. It was the sin of pride that was at the root of even Cain's sin that brought a separation and snuffed out the life of Abel. And so in the same way, pride damages relationship between people. Now, this is where it can be helpful to, you know, just look in the mirror, right? And have muster at least enough humility to ask ourselves the question of, what is my track record in cultivating strong relationships with other people? And where has there been relational dysfunction in my life? And how might I have possibly contributed to that 
Or had I walked in a greater humility, is it possible that I could have healed that relationship or come out of that relationship in a better or healthier way? If we've learned humility in our life, we've probably had the capacity to cultivate healthy relationships. Um, if you don't have healthy relationships with other people, you've struggled with that in the past. I'm sure nobody has a problem with that now. But if you struggle with that in the past, it was probably pride that was at the root. I remember many years ago, I had uh, one of the most significant conflicts that I'd had with a pastor that I was working with at the time and, and leading. And um, looking back on that, I can clearly see that there was probably some pride and some arrogance at work in my heart that made it difficult for me to follow this person. Now, it was easy for me at the time to point to all the insecurities in this leader and to look at all the long train of people that followed him for a short amount of time and then couldn't you know, follow him after that. And I was trying to help shape this person and direct. I was trying to push into his life a little bit more. And we reached this point where the relationship just kind of blew up. I was one of the pastors in the church and he he, I'll never forget this meeting we had. We're sitting in this cafe, and he's, he tells me that he's removing, he, he said, I'm stepping you down from, uh, from your pastoral role in this church. And I was like, all right. And I, I, I knew things were, things were not looking so great at that point. So I wasn't very surprised, right? And, and our hearts had kind, of, had kind of grown apart from one another. And, um, it was very difficult because Lives was leading worship at the time, and we tried to continue in the church for a little while, but we ended up having to move on. But I remember before we did, the Holy Spirit, like, really started, like, in a very painful way, showing me, like, the, some really ugly stuff in my heart, and how I really didn't love this man as I could have and should have, and how in my own self-importance and my, my pride and my perspective that I could do this way better than you are right now, like if you would only give me more opportunity. Uh, and so God's like really like, like convicting my heart, and I'm seeing the pride and the arrogance, and, and so I actually felt the Holy Spirit say, I want you to meet with him. And I want you to confess to him the things that I've shown you and, and revealed to you. And so do you remember this meeting? We catch up, we're at my house. And I, don't, I can't explain it other than like, I was just broken before God. I was humbled by God in seeing the depravity of my heart. And I was just like weeping. He's sitting on the other couch. I'm weeping. I'm, I'm, I'm confessing my sin to him and how I've sinned against him and how I didn't follow him well and, and asking him to forgive me. And you should have seen this guy, like his eyes were like this, like <laughs> he was like, what is happening right now? You know? And I wish I could tell you that that healed the relationship. And uh, it was actually, you know, he got up, he left. There wasn't much that was said. 
and I've had very little interaction with him to this point. Tried to reconnect with him at one point, it just didn't work out. I mean, we could sit down and hang out, it would be wonderful. We'd love each other and it would be great. But there was an, an inability for us to kind of partner together and work together. There was too much damage done, right? But I believe that responding to God in that moment and humbling myself, going beyond, God, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? I'll do better next time. But really sitting with him and just putting it all out there. I mean, I, can, I don't know if I can think of a time where I felt as humbled by God as in, in that moment. I believe that I would say I don't know that I would have had the emotional health to have ended up at Numa as I did, to have found that family and to be here where I am right now if I didn't respond in obedience to God telling me to humble myself before my brother. I think sometimes we approach these things like, oh, it'll be all right, I'll do it the next time. But, but, but these things are, are tied to our future and our destiny. It's our humility that sows trust. It's like these test moments in our life where God says, all right, I want you to humble yourself in this moment. And we don't even know what the opportunity cost of not doing it is. We just later find out, man, I don't know if I could have walked into what I walked into if I didn't have that depth of healing in my soul with my brother. If we're proud and toxic in our soul, we're never going to be able to sustain healthy relationships over a long period of time. We're always going to, we're going to destroy them. We're, we're going to, um, they're going to self-destruct. It's like sometimes we do it purposefully, you know, like not even realizing that we do it purposefully. Remember I spoke last week about that, that fear of rejection that can cause us to reject other people because we perceive they're about to reject us, so we reject them before they're gonna reject us. It's like, you know, in high school, you catch wind that they're gonna break up with you. Well, I'm gonna break up with them before they break up with me, you know? It's, it's this fear of rejection. I wanna stay in, in a place of power and control in the relationship so I can feel, feel better about myself. And, and then, you know, not even really realizing and knowing that actually everything's great. Like, I love you and I wanna, yeah, we got some things we maybe need to work through, but let's heal that and let's, let's move on. Humility attracts people. Pride repels people. It, dis it, it destroys relationship. Humility creates healthy relationship. Pride creates toxic relationship. Let's keep going. Humility builds others up, but pride is selfish. This was Reagan's strength, according to Gergen never allowed himself to become the center of attention. He was genuinely more concerned about building others up, elevating other people. He considered other people more important than himself. Reagan was a Christian, actually. Um, Clinton, on the other hand, was always bringing the conversation back to himself. If we claim that we have no selfish ambition. And this is the passage in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. If we take the attitude that we have no selfish ambition, then we are 
really deceiving ourselves. All of us are being constantly tempted to operate from this place of selfish ambition, to put ourselves first. We often see this when we get married, right? Or when we move in with someone else. And there's this, you know, we have a housemate and all of the buttons get pushed and all of the, the selfish ambition comes out. Selfish ambition is any pursuit or any motive that is rooted in self. It has self at the center. Selfish ambition elevates self as important above everyone else. My purpose matters most. My agenda matters most. What I want in life matters most. And we can see it many times in our lives when we prefer ourselves over other people. It could be something simple, taking the best seat, grabbing the best pizza piece of pizza, you know? I mean, we, how much of a father's job is in the home trying to cultivate uh, a sense of preferring others? There's so many times I'm like, all right, well, first will be last and last will be first, all right? We're going to flip this around. You want to be first? So Jesus said, first is last, right? So there's the, 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 the Holy Spirit is always challenging us and provoking us to get eyes off, not to operate from selfish ambition, but preferring others. And this is the call to follow Jesus. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Deny yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, love this quote. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to growing daily in self-denial, denying yourself, emptying yourself, preferring others over self. Take up your cross. The cross is an instrument of death. It's not a religious symbol at that time when Jesus was talking about it. It's not the little ornament you wear around the neck. It's not the, the tattoo. It's an instrument of death. It's an electric chair. It's a vial of poison injected into the vein. It's, it's a means of execution. Take up your cross. And so most often in our lives, at least in my life, taking up our cross looks a lot like seeking to resolve conflict in humility and being willing to confess my sin, even if I think that the other person was more at fault than me. Even when I think it was more their dysfunction that destroyed the relationship than me. God doesn't ask, okay, I want you to assess the situation and work out who's more at fault. And then if you say that you're less at fault, then, I mean, how many times are we not going to say that, right? You say you're less at fault, then you just chill and you just wait for the other person to work it out. No, no, no. Remember what he says. If, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you realize that your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled to them. You go and take the initiative. You be the humble one, the bigger person. If, you're the, if you've got the humility to come and sacrifice the gift, then you've got the humility to be the one that goes and seeks to make right the relationship. And so we have to re renounce that temptation to only pursue self-centered, transactional, consumer relationship. Remember we were talking last week about 
church is a covenant family and how covenant relationship is different than consumer relationship. A consumer relationship is I will be to you whatever I should be as long as into the degree that you, that you are what you should be. But when you stop, I'm gone. All right. It's like, yeah, that's the relationship we have with the, the grocery store we shop at. Right. But it's not the relationship that God calls us to have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Covenant relationship says I will commit to I will promise I will decide to love you regardless of whether or not I feel like I'm receiving love back from you. Now, it's beautiful and wonderful when you got two people that are loving each other like that. Nothing greater. That's what ultimate marriage is. And that's what we experience in covenant family. But it takes some time to be sanctified, doesn't it? To become more like Jesus and to begin to naturally live out of that place. What was it? There was one pastor who was saying it takes like, like, is it's like the seven to nine year mark in marriage where you, before you ever start to have a selfless thought towards your spouse. (laughs) Like it takes some time, you know, it's not a fun process. God takes us through things and we, we, through our interaction with other people, pride comes up. And if we respond rightly, we become more like Jesus. But how often do we tend to run? How often do you see people running from those opportunities to humble self, often rooted in wounds from the past and and issues in the soul? Moving along quickly, humility builds a culture of honor, but pride creates a culture of competition. And so even though Jesus was God, he chose not to compete with God. He didn't compete. He emptied himself. And so one of our kingdom culture values is that honor affirms value. Now, I think we stole this from Bethel, but that's all right. They stole it from the Bible, so we can steal it from them. But Bill Johnson was asked once, you know, what is it that has, do you feel has most helped you as a church to sustain this revival and the presence of God and this move of God God amongst your church? And his response was, said, I believe more than anything else, it was the culture of honor that we created here. Because we see a lot of revivals come and then end because you've got people who just can't get along. People that God called to walk together and steward revival together who can't reconcile their relationship and they separate and the presence of God lifts and moves on somewhere else. And so when we say honor, what we mean is this, it's to esteem or value someone independently of what they can do for us, independently of what they have done in the past, but simply based upon who they are, how God sees them, an image bearer, or if a Christian, a child of God. Honoring them based on their inherent value, not for what we can get out of them. And so Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for not having a culture of honor. They were instead preferencing uh, from a self-centered perspective, wealthy people that were coming to their services. And he rebukes them in the letter. He says, why are you showing all this love and attention to the people with money? Look what's coming out in your heart. Look at the self-centeredness. Look at the selfish ambition. Look at all you're thinking about is worldly temporal things. That's not a culture of honor. In a culture of honor, 
We, ba- we relate to one another on the basis of inherent value. But it's pride and jealousy that creates competition. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, this is James 3, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so in a culture of competition, the other person's gain is seen as your loss. It's like this zero-sum scarcity mindset. There's not enough to go around from, other, from everyone. There's not enough favor from God. If this person gets blessed, it means that I don't. If this person gets recognized or exalted by God, I don't. And Paul says that's evil. Wherever that exists, wherever there's that selfish ambition, that jealousy, that competitive spirit, there will be every vile practice. We see competition in the heart of the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. Not enough love from the father to go around. Jealous of the attention that his brother was receiving. But it created something toxic in his heart. Final thought. Humility believes the best about others. But pride partners with the accuser. So pride and insecurity, jealousy, selfish ambition, causes us to tend to, tend to jump to the worst possible conclusion of what a person means when they say something or their reaction in a moment. And guess who is right there to help? It's the accuser of the brothers. John calls out the accuser in his vision, Revelation 12. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. So Satan, our great enemy, is referred to the accuser. He's accusing us before God. He's accusing us to ourselves. And he's accusing us to one another because the enemy hates our unity. He hates humility. He hates the health of covenant family and the love that it's experienced through humility when we discern the voice, his voice, the voice of the accuser, and we refuse to listen. But it's when we're proud and arrogant, insecure, that it's hard to discern that voice. We don't actually recognize the voice of the accuser. Let me ask you this. Which do you think is a better way to talk to someone about your disappointment in the relationship with them? So option one is this. Hey, I I thought we were covenant family around here. If this was truly covenant family, you would be taking a greater, greater interest in me. You clearly don't really love me. You're not really acting like you love me very much. I don't even really know if I'm loved in this place. Or here's option two. You know, I, I just wanted to catch up because I really value you and I value your relationship and I would really love to be closer to you than I am. And to be honest, I haven't really been feeling very loved. I'm sure that wasn't your intention at all. 
but would it be all right if we just catch up and just work on a relationship? Which one of those do you think is going to be a more healthy pathway to great relationship? It's obviously number two. One of them is listening to the voice of the accuser, but the other one is doing what? Believing the best. I'm sure this wasn't your intention. And we tend to do this all the time. Remember, I was talking about how we can often misunderstand other people and how they relate to us because they're different than us. They relate to us according to their strength, and they think that they're loving us, or maybe they're just oblivious to something. Like this happens a lot in our relationship because Olivia is very empathetic, and it's easy in a relationship to think, well, um, everybody's like this, right? Like everybody has this empathy. Everybody should be thinking like, this is how I love people. I love people through my empathy. And if you're not feeling what I'm feeling, uh, you know, then you obviously don't love me. Like that's the temptation in all of, and I'm not saying lives relates to me like this. You're an amazing wife. You're so humble. But we all have that temptation to, to do that, right? To assume that there's not love coming rather than believing the best. Humility believes the best and takes responsibility for the health of the relationship. And humility makes asking for forgiveness very easy. But to be honest, I don't know that I've ever had a time when humbling myself felt easy. Humbling myself has always meant crucifying the flesh, a decision of my will, I will not act according to the desire of my flesh to elevate myself or to hide or to isolate. I'm going to act according to the voice of God and the desire of my spirit. I'm going to kill my flesh and live from this place of obedience to God. Maybe have the worship team come back up. I'd love to really just finish today in a moment of worship and asking the Holy Spirit. My pacing is really messing up this carpet. Really ask the Holy Spirit to show us, Lord, what does it look like for me to respond to this word? What does it look like for me to grow in humility? Well, here's another one. Father, how would you like me to humble myself? Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. 
I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.